Good morning, church. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we have to pick a side. Sometimes it's not enough to just articulate a point or to recount perspectives. Sometimes in the back of my mind, there's a, there's a voice that says, justify the concerns of the uneasy. But whenever that voice speaks, there's another one that pipes in that says, no, utter a prophetic word to the struggling. Now is just such a time. The police have been viciously assaulting civilians around the country. Millions are unemployed. Children are found in trash cans in Waco. Black men and women are living under the dark cloud of the threat of domestic terrorism. Yeah, all four of George Floyd's murderers have been arrested and charged. Third-degree murder did become second-degree murder, but as of this sermon, Breonna Taylor's murderers still remain at large. All of this requires a word from the Lord. Brothers and sisters, white supremacy is demonic. And I want to address this before your guards go up, brothers and brothers or sisters whose, whose guard may go up when I say things like this. Before you, before you check out, I, I, I want to tell you, I, I've, been where you I've been where you are. I didn't, I didn't come out of the womb with a black power fist. It, it, it's, it's, been a, it's been a journey for me, a journey of repentance and of learning. But we're dealing with a nation that is grieving. I know we're a multicultural community. I know that we have some folks who have different perspectives on the events of the last few weeks. I mean, I've, I have my thoughts on who's right or wrong in these discussions, but that's not a matter here. We can do that offline. This morning is about what the Lord has to say to the discouraged and the downtrodden. So yeah, so what you might hear today might be considered inside baseball. This is, this is, this is what the Lord has to say to those who are in pain. So if you're not one of them, listen for their sake to be able to love them well. So we're now in a situation where the stakes are high. Some of you are new to the struggle. Some of you have felt it for a while. I submit to you that, that, that historically, every generation of Christians engaged in the struggle against individual and systemic sin experiences this particular push and pull. And, 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 they, and they especially experience this, discouragement. The temptation to despair. For some of us, it's the recognition that even in a global pandemic, white supremacy has, has refused to quarantine. The lynching of black, not, not people of color, racialized black people specifically, lynching of black people has not engaged in social distancing. Tommy Curry, author of a book that comes recommended to me by a very good friend, says this, no racialized group is more criminalized killed by homicide, or isolated from society as black males. And right under that, though, was, is the concerns of my black sisters. And I refuse to let my sisters go uncared for. And for some of us, not only do we have to worry about contracting a disease for which there is as yet no treatment in a, in a healthcare system that disproportionately leaves us to die, but we also have to deal with the risk of being hunted and killed. Now, now it's, not, it's, not, it's not my intention to, 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 to bleed all over you in this sermon and to leave you with nothing. This is already very uncomfortable for Desiree because she thinks that preaching Malcolm is far too intense. Uh, but, but as I said last week, however, however upset we may be, the Lord is more upset than we are. 
And so we're, so we're going to have to get into it today. We're going to have to see the evil, but our goal is not to stay there. Our goal is hope. And so our question is this, in a world of death, where can I hope? For the memory of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and the black men, women, and children who have been lynched in this world, please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, give me strength to speak your word for your people. Comfort your people who must be comforted and break the hearts that need to be broken. I pray these things in the name of your son and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is a sermon about our hope. And we have to know our hope. We have to know the well from which we can draw in times of trouble. And so I have three questions for us today. What, what do we want to hope in? Who ought we hope in? And where does our hope take us? This is a sermon for those who are tempted to despair. And so that first question, what, what do we want to hope in? Well, we want to hope in the world, and we want to hope in the church. First, the world. So one of the most heartbreaking passages in Scripture is 1 Samuel 8. Time-wise, 1 Samuel follows the book of Judges, a harrowing and brutal account of Israel's descent into lawlessness. Stories of murder, sexual victimization, and just people just all out wilding out. And throughout the book, there are these two phrases that are repeated over and over again, and they, and, and they, and they come together in the final verse of the book. And those, and those phrases are these. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So there's no centralized ruler, and everybody's just doing whatever they want. And so the former is a political reality, that there's no ruler. 
And the second is a constant moral reality, that people are just doing whatever they want. And by the end of Judges, even the people know something, something's wrong. And so what, so, what, so what happens? Well, God raises up Samuel as a judge and as a prophet, and the people go to him when he's old. And they say uh, in, in 1 Samuel 8, 4, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now Samuel didn't like that. And when, and when he prayed to the Lord, it was revealed why. Because the Lord told Samuel in verse 7, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being a king over them. And so Samuel goes back to the people and he warns them about what placing their hopes in a human king is going to result in. I want you to just, just listen to the cascade of 1 Samuel 8, 11 to 18, because he tells them what their king is going to do to them. He says, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the and the equipment of his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the, he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself but the Lord will not answer you in that day. In short, your king will build a military industrial complex and exploit you financially. I'm not making this up. This is just literally just what the word says. And the people's response, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I, I get it, but we still want a king though. Brothers and sisters, you and I cannot place our hope in governmental worldly structures. As long as they are built maintained and operated by sinful human beings, systemic injustice will continue. I'm sorry to burst your bubble if you thought that we were gonna win this war because of our advocacy. We, we may still win small victories. After all, slavery, lynching, and segregation did fade partially because of advocacy, but each of these things was replaced by something more insidious because the problem isn't just the existence of the system. It's the people who uphold it. And as long as we are imperfect, greedy, prideful, lustful human beings, we will act out those things on one another. Your hope cannot be in a presidential candidate. We especially cannot put our hope in someone willing to tear gas protesters for a photo op in front of a church with a Bible. God will not be mocked. And black Christians, I, we especially know this to be true. We would be hard-pressed to find a president in the, in the entirety of American history who didn't ascribe to racist ideas or allow racist policies to remain in place. I submit to you, there have been none. Remember God's words to the Israelites? They didn't reject you, Samuel the prophet. They rejected me. They insist on forgetting that I am their king, and so I'm going to put them in a situation where they must remember that their hope is somewhere else. And if you've been paying attention, you have been disappointed with the world. And you ought to be. It's a fallen world. Ever since Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the world has been filled with murder. When God flooded the earth in Genesis 7, he did so because every inclination of the human heart was evil, according to the text. And afterwards, 
every inclination of the human heart was still evil. Jeremiah says it again. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The first step of the so-called Romans road to salvation is our sinfulness, our deep, rotting sinfulness. None is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Take a look again at the psalm that we're focusing on. Verse three. Oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, oh Lord, and, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. You have a hope in that world? You will be disappointed every time. And if you're paying attention to the world around you, I expect many of you are deeply, deeply disappointed. Now, this doesn't mean don't fight. That would be the hopeless reaction. Things are never going to change, so why try? But I can't tell you where the hope is yet. We have another idol we have to destroy. Because we might hear about the depravity of the world and think that it doesn't extend into the church. And so we hope in the church. And, 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 and I refuse to slander the bride of Christ. That is not what this is. Because she is beautiful and she is precious to the Savior but people are really insistent on mucking it up. If you're listening to this in, in, in the United States, you're living in a country in which not only have systems been created that tend toward the deaths of the people around you, but churches have been integral to that death-dealing work. Here is not the space for me to talk about the intricacies of redlining, of the convict leasing system, of racial housing covenants, of predatory lending, of, of job discrimination, of police violence, of experimentation upon black men and women for the sake of scientific discovery, of, of the Tulsa mass lynching of 1921. Look up the Greenwood District. This past week was actually the 99-year anniversary of that, of any number, of, 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 any number of, of horrible things in our history and in our present. You've got to know about those things as a citizen, and I can point you to some sources, but, but my purpose this morning is to remind you of our failures as a church, as a people who have claimed to be the body of Christ. And I say this as someone who's affiliated, for better or for worse, with the denomination whose most prominent historical heroes were virulent racists who were the intellectual architects of pro-slavery and pro-segregation arguments. Westminster's awesome. I love it. These, the, the, the confessions and creeds, absolutely love them. But even good things can be twisted for evil ends. And most egregiously, this has been done to the scriptures themselves, as folks use the so-called curse of Ham and Mark of Cain to argue for black inferiority. And that came from the church. What does this tell us? It tells us that we want to hope in the church, that, 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 that we want to think that the people of God will do better, after all, the Holy Spirit is in us. Isn't that good grounds for our hope? Do not mistake the fruit for the root. Our hope is not in the bride herself. Because people in the church apart from, are, apart from Christ, just as depraved as those outside. Remember 1 Corinthians 5 when Paul rebukes the church for having a so-called member uh, who has his father's wife? Paul emphasizes that not even the pagans do that. In some cases, the Christians are even worse than non-Christians. Frederick Douglass thought so. Consider these words from him, part of a poem that applied not only to slavery, but even to the American church in later days. 
They'll loudly talk of Christ's reward and bind his image with a cord and scold and swing the lash abhorred and sell their brother in the Lord to handcuffed heavenly union. They'll read and sing a sacred song and make a prayer both loud and long and teach the right and do the wrong, hailing the brother-sister throng with words of heavenly union. Love not the world, the preacher said, and winked his eye and shook his head. He seized on Tom and Dick and Ned, cut short their meat and clothes and bread, yet still loved heavenly union. Christians ignoring and exacerbating the plight of racialized minorities isn't cute, it isn't surprising, and it isn't new. It is unfortunately, brothers and sisters, familiar. And so our ultimate hope cannot be in the church. You can't place your hope in your pastors. We will undoubtedly at some point fail you and do something worthy of your rebuke for which we ought to repent promptly. So it's our hope that you, you can trust us, but your hope is not rooted in us. Your brothers and sisters will, be, will, will do the same. And so if you can't hope in the world, if you can't hope in the church, who can you hope in? I'm so glad you asked. Because I hope that you see that our, that our dilemma is dire. The streets run with the blood of the innocent, and our ears ring with their cries. As Abel's blood cried out to God from the ground, from the ground Brianna Taylor's blood cries out. George Floyd's blood cries out. Atatiana Jefferson's blood cries out. Pamela Turner's blood cries out. Walter Scott's blood cries out. Sandra Bland's blood cries out. Well, these are not just random names. These are casualties of white supremacy's war on humanity. And the question is, who's listening? Our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is in the fact that God hears. And you can understand that in a few ways. And here's one way not to understand it. This is not theological escapism. This is not a, well, God's going to deal with it, so there's nothing that I need to do. This is not a, let me attend a rally or a prayer night, pray that white supremacy goes away, and then go on with my life as, as I did before kind of application. This is the kind of truth that in the dark night of your soul wraps its arms around you to comfort you. When you are shouting into the void because of your pain, you must know that the Lord is who he says he is, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Re remember the words of the psalmist in, 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 in Psalm 94, verses 9 and 10. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? Does he not rebuke? The Lord hears. That psalm continues, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. He continues, who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? The answer was given at the beginning of the psalm and it continues, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. 
Oh, may we not be numbered among the proud brothers and sisters. Oh, may we not be numbered among those who place themselves above one another, whether by means of racial caste or any other means. Because if we do, we risk, in no uncertain terms, the wrath of the God of vengeance. Because to set yourself against the people of God by pride, greed, or any other such sin is to set yourself against God. And my Lord doesn't play that. Take another look at Psalm 94, 17 to 23. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. The Lord then has set himself against all of the wicked and his threat to wipe them out is not idle. But some of you will suggest, but that's just God in the Old Testament. Don't we serve a God of love and grace? Do you not see the love and grace in this passage? Do you not see that the psalmist is comforted by the presence, power, and promise of the Lord? Do you not see that it's precisely the Lord's love of righteousness that then compels him to destroy wickedness? It is the God that we, it is that the God that we serve is light and there is no darkness in him. And so he does not tolerate evil and he does not tolerate the oppression of his creation. Do you not see that the reason that the Son of God took on flesh lived a perfect life, and died in a way that was in one act a giving up of his life, a mob lynching, and a murder committed by the state, that he did that because the wickedness of you and me was so great that it required the sinless, perfect sacrifice of God's only begotten. And yet the God, and yet the God we serve did not spare even his own son. But, hmm, the son did not remain in the grave. His love was not, his life was not taken in vain. When the son of God's blood cried out from the ground, the father answered, and he answered with a vindicating right hand, lifting the son by the spirit from death to life. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, he got up, don't give up. He got up, don't give up. Then after he got up, though, he ascended. He went up to the right hand of the Father. Why? To wait. Because it is finished on the cross was one step of the plan. The people of God had a gospel to spread, as we do today. We're to be a beacon of good news to a fallen world. We're to be a beacon of equality and justice in a criminally unequal and sickeningly unjust world. We're to be ambassadors of Christ in a world that wants to have nothing to do with him. Why? Because the final article of our faith and the climax of our hope is that he's coming back. And he's coming back soon. And he's coming back to right wrongs. And he's not coming back the way that he came the first time. 
because he came as a baby the first time, and this time he's coming as a warrior. He's coming as a conqueror. He's coming as the psalmist reminds us to wipe out the wicked for their wickedness. Revelation 19 does it, does it best. John, John looks and he sees heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and his righteousness and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Brothers and sisters, I pity the wicked. I pity the blasphemers, the mockers, those who visit violence upon God's image bearers. Their time is coming. We can be angry. We ought to be angry. We could be afraid. We could have any number of reactions to the wickedness around us. But, but if you have been united with Christ through faith, by the Holy Spirit, you need not fear. Because that image of the coming of Christ shall be a terror to them. But it shall be a balm for you. For the Lord shall not allow oppression to continue forever, nor shall he let his people languish in agony. And his people ought not allow it either. Greed has reigned for a while, but it will not reign forever. Lust has dug its talons into our hearts, but it shall not forever. White supremacy has attempted to rule even in the church, but it shall not reign forever. That is your living hope, brothers and sisters. There may be others we may march alongside who have similar secular priorities, but they cannot share our stamina. Because that's the thing, you know, in this, in, this, in this struggle against sin, individual and systemic, you're going to lose some battles. You're going to run up against some seemingly insurmountable walls. You'll be doing so well, and then you'll fall back into, into pornography. You'll be doing so well, and then you'll fall back into envy. You'll be making so much progress in your activism, and then all of your opportunities may be stripped away from you. In those moments, where will you go? You need an infinite well of hope to dip your bucket into. You need your hope to be rooted in a savior who died, was raised, ascended, and is returning not with an olive branch, but with a sword to defend his people once and for all. Whenever a drop of blood from the people of God is, is spilled, whenever an image bearer is demeaned, oppressed, spat upon or lynched, the saints huddled around the throne of God get antsy. Creation is itself continues to groan. The very son of God cracks his knuckles of heavenly flesh, aching to protect his people. And yet the father says, not yet. And that's according to 2 Peter 3. Why hasn't he come back? Why hasn't he broken the arm of the oppressor yet? Why in the world has he, has, has he not broken the sky yet? Because we serve a God of mercy and we still have a gospel to spread because the time is short. But rest assured, he is coming. 
The day of the Lord is coming. And so we've got to gear up. And so what does it mean to gear up for the day of the Lord? Well, that's the mission of this church. To adore Christ, to apply the gospel, and to act with mercy and justice. It's to, it's to trumpet the personal, communal, and cosmic elements of the, of the good news. It means to repent, to disciple, and to liberate. It means that we care for one another and call one another out in our public sins, in our private sins, and in our sins of complicity. It, it, it means that, that we use every resource at our disposal to see the good news of Jesus Christ go forth, and it means that we use every resource at our disposal to feed the hungry and thirsty, to clothe the naked, to welcome the stranger, and to visit the sick and imprisoned. Because the Lord said that when he returns, like that's what he's going to ask of us. Did we do those things? And that, dear brother and dear sister, is the work of the gospel. Digging deep beyond just, just momentary feeding also, but digging also into the reasons that that feeding might be necessary. Especially the ways in which we might be complicit in the hunger of our neighbors. That, is that the work of the gospel? Yes. Is rallying for black lives the work of the gospel? Yes. Is using your vote, your political power, and your money to beat back the wickedness of oppression, is that the work of the gospel? Yes. Is seeking to be a voice of reason, justice, love, and redemption in your local school board, city council, and state government, is that the work of the gospel? Yes. Because to know Christ and to be in union with him is to live a life of repentance, to believe in his person and his work, and to fight for the lives of his people. And to those who would see white supremacy win, to those who would see themselves exalted over their neighbor, to those who would refuse Christ as Lord, Savior, and reconciler between God and man, to those who would think that Christ only cares about the soul, the message from the Lord is clear. Repent, or when the heavens pass away with a roar, you shall perish with them. Your time is short, but the sons and daughters of God shall reign with him forever. Thus says the Lord.